Take a network break. Help yourself to a holiday-themed virtual donut and join us as we dash through the snow of IT news, laughing all the way. We cover VMware updates to its licensing. We check in on the firewall and campus switch markets. We pour one out for the Open Networking Foundation. We've got space news and more. We're sponsored today by Palo Alto Networks. Your branches change, your SD-WAN should too. Palo Alto Networks wants to show you how AI and ML are powering next-gen SD-WAN and SASE for the branch. SDX Central and Palo Alto Networks hosted an exclusive online event that shows how NextGen SD-WAN and SASE can help you modernize and secure your branches. Go to sdxcentral.com to get the link to this free event to see the replay uh, or find it here in the show notes for Network Break 460. And then stay tuned. We have a Tech Bytes podcast sponsored by Fortinet. We're going to dive into Fortinet Advisor. This is a new generative AI offering designed to act as an assistant to SOC analysts and security teams by providing context-aware event summaries, potential impacts, and recommended responses, while also keeping humans in the loop. That was an interesting discussion. A lot of the things we've talked about in terms of AI, you know, this is what Fortinet appears to be delivering. Um, and probably the biggest takeaway was they're not charging extra. You don't have to pay extra to access this AI. That was the that, standout feature. That was a surprise to me, yes. Yes. Uh, I have questions, but yeah, it was a surprise. So You're uh, not losing anything, but it just doesn't, it's a feature. It's not a, it's not a new product. It's not an extra licensing fee, which was great, I thought. Yeah. Worth listening to. Yeah, take a listen. Uh, before we get to the news, we have an FU to an FU. Uh, last week, we mentioned that Broadcom followed up with us to say that its newest ASIC could support 800 gig uplinks from a server to a top of rack switch. But as yet, a NIC that could pump out 800 gig hasn't yet come to market. So a listener wrote in to say, quote, making 800 gigabit NICs might have to wait for the server internals to catch up. A PCI Express 5.0 by 16 slot can do 63 gigabits per second, which isn't enough to fill that pipe. Uh, though as each generation of PCI roughly doubles the bandwidth, it might not take too long. Yeah, so this is an interesting one because the PCI Express does not measure its throughput like an Ethernet port does, although it does in a way, right? We often talk about 800 gig Ethernet being 4 by 200s, 4 by 200 gig lanes, mm -hmm. which is actually what it is. It uses a PAM4 encoding and each one has a 200 gig bearer in it. Uh, for some versions of 800 gig at least, 400 gig is often 4 by 100, can be 2 by 200, and it can even be eight by 50 as well. So PCIe is similar in the sense that it has multiple lanes. And so the author is quite correct. A PCI Express 5, which is the fifth generation of the standard, which is a 32 gigatransactions per second. That's its idea. And there are 16, and he puts an X16, which means 16 lanes. So mm -hmm. if you take 64, sorry, 32 gigatransactions per second per lane in each direction, then you multiply that by 16, you get around 64 gigabits per second. Uh, as he points out, PCIe 6 is expected to do 64 gigatransactions per lane, resulting in a data rate of around 64 gigabits per second. So if you had 15 of them, you can do the maths. And yes, that at, um, that number, you're getting up to 960 gigabits per second, theoretical. However, the one thing that a lot of people don't do when they're doing these sizing exercises is they don't actually calculate in the efficiency of data on an internal bus. So that is when you transfer data over the internal bus, it doesn't get an ethernet header or a UDP or a TCP header. It doesn't get an ethernet header, uh, sorry, an IP header added. And then if you're using an overlay in a normal network, it also gets the VXLAN header added or the as well for, for any sort of an overlay network. And so what you often find is the actual good put, that is the actual useful data rate, is significantly less than an internal bus because in my experience or in most data center networks, the protocol overheads that we just talked about are in the order of 10 to 15, and in some cases, as much as 25%. Because if you're sending data in very small frames, so if you're sending data in a 256 byte or a 512 byte sort of nominal frame size, the actual useful data after all of that is down around the 400 bytes per, per thing. So mm -hmm. 
And that's a lot of overhead just wasted away on, you know, segmentation and so you can mux it over a networking circuit. So this is the reason that, and we've talked about this a few times, but I've never really explained it. So I'll take this opportunity. NVIDIA has its own bus called the NVLink for AI. And this bus, the first generation was 300 gigabits per second. The second generation is 600 gigabits per second. And the third generation is probably up to around 900 gigabits per second and it's already shipping. So that is why NVIDIA has its own buses because PCIe is deficient when you're talking about AI processing. So thank you very much for the FU. You're quite right. The answer is the internal bus speed is not fast enough to fill up an 800 gig, but PCIe 6, which I believe is coming soon, I believe that Intel, who is the owner of that standard, it is an open-ish standard from mm. ETH, Intel, um, and you're probably in the point where you can actually now start to move you know, as much as 800 gigs, but your actual good port of data over that isn't 800 gigabits per second. Comparatively, it's some factor less, probably possibly as little as 600 gigabits per second. So be aware of the whole problem, not part of the problem. Uh, and yes, as always, we appreciate uh, follow-up, uh, comments, clarifications, corrections, even kudos. They're all welcome at packetpushers.net slash FU. All right, let's dive into the news. Uh, from the That Didn't Take Long file, Broadcom has announced that it's ending perpetual licenses for its VMware portfolio and moving to a subscription model. The announcement comes just days after Broadcom completed the VMware acquisition. Um, buried in the press release in a lot of language about innovation and faster time to value, the announcement says, quote, offerings will solely be available as subscriptions or as term licenses following the end of sale of perpetual licenses and support and subscription renewals beginning today. <laughs> this didn't take long, but it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. Broadcom telegraphed this, and we suggested as much. We felt that all of the stuff that you're seeing right now is is exactly to be expected. Broadcom wants to move quickly. It spent a lot of money to buy VMware, and whatever it's going to do to make VMware change, I think it's going to go into it as fast as possible because it needs to get that money back. Broadcom does operate like a private equity firm. There's no nice. There's no, oh, you've served the company well. It's a, you're a liability, you're out. Or, you know, we don't know really know what you do, you're out. We'd rather rehire you or hire somebody else to replace you than to keep you around and try and find out what your value is, right? right. So um, we know that Broadcom wants to increase its prices. If you think about this, the basically, or the simplest way to think about it is that Broadcom is saying, you're going to buy this product, and if you have a term license, you're going to buy it again in three years or five years or whatever the term of that license is. Yep. And that's how they're going to get the revenue growth, because instead of selling it once, and then letting customers use it for five years, 10 years, whatever their internal cycle might be, they're going to force them to upgrade, force them to renew, force them to pay. And that means increased cash flow. And I think the other side of this is that they're simplifying the product line. So much less licensing choices, you know, much less product choices. There's much more about a bundle. And I think this is going to effectively lift the total revenue that VMware generates for Broadcom because they're going to sell you a product bundle. And you're going to say to VM, you know, go to say to the VMware sales rep, I don't want all of this. And they're going to go, well, you can have this bundle or you can have that bundle, right? It's like, you know, handing, handing it to McDonald's and saying, I want a burger and fries, but no chips. And they say, doesn't matter. Sorry, no drink. And you say, I don't care. You either buy the meal, Dale. But not, right. uh, you, you can say, well, the I'll just have the trash, but you're getting yeah. it and you're paying for it. That's right. And even worse, you can't say, I just want the burger. They're going to go, no, no, it's a meal deal or nothing. Get out. Right. Yes. And so much. I think this is where we're headed. Um, in, and I think simplification of licensing is a good thing. A lot of time was being wasted on both sides. A number of people complain about licensing from VMware and Cisco and you know, HPE and Dell and all this sort of stuff. And I think some simplification was good there. And the thing we don't think about this is, you know, sure, customers are unhappy with it, but I'm pretty sure the vendors aren't too happy about it either. 
because they're doing an awful lot of internal planning and how much do we license and what features do we put in? Mm-hmm. You know, hundreds of internal meetings and wasted man hours on pointless discussions that really don't move the needle or improve the customer experience. Right. So, Yes. And if you already have a perpetual license, you can keep it, but at some point your support contract will end and you won't be able to renew support unless you ditch that perpetual license for a term or subscription license. So that's how they've, that's the deal. (laughs) Yeah. Now we know why Broadcom was suspending all the deals in flight ahead of the acquisition. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the sort of aggression you're going to see from Broadcom in terms of dealing with you as a customer. I do note that this is probably bad for small to medium-sized companies. They're just... I keep getting the sense that they're just not important to Broadcom and there won't be much effort from their side to appeal to the needs or requirements. So we know a lot of small companies buy ESX hypervisor and just run, you know, 20 VMs or 30 VMs and that's kind of where they're at. Um, Broadcom has made it clear to analysts and shareholders. They haven't said this part out loud. You know, this is a quiet part that you sort of don't say, Uh but they're actually out there in the public financial market saying to shareholders and to analysts, yes, we're going to grow revenue. We're going to attack the top 2000 customers worldwide. And the rest of them are sort of, you know, we're not too interested in the smaller end of the market. I think that is probably something that for a lot of people, they're going to have to reevaluate where you are. If you're a reseller, you know, of a modest size, if you're not, you know, one of the mega resellers that go to market that seem to exist today, if you're a smaller one working in the mid to mid mid end of the market, mid to low end, you should take note here and start thinking about if your customers are asking for VMware and you've been able to find a way to sell it to them cheaply enough or you know, price it inside of their budget, you may not be able to do that coming up in the future. So you might want to rethink here. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a whole bunch of, it's just so much stuff that comes out of this. Like I think subscription licensing works for a few companies, but I think most would prefer to continue to CapEx their IT costs. I think that's what a lot of companies have been trying to do is saying, I want to get my licensing, I want to fix my costs so I know what it is. But I think it's very true that subscription licensing is good for vendor shareholders. And especially for executives in these companies, because they can smooth out the revenue. Yeah. They know exactly when it's coming. You know, you can predict that I'm going to lose 5% of my customers, you know, 3% or, you know, I. you can look at average revenue per user, every revenue per customer. You can see exactly, you get all this data coming back from them because they have to put licensing servers on-prem to be in compliance. Mm-hmm. And so the vendors are collecting all this data and that's going to drive sales activity because if customers start using less or the licensing server notices competitor products on the network, that's not very moral, but that's the sort of thing that will happen. And then I think also the products are going to change because the product teams are going to be driven by what the data is coming back from those subscription licenses. Right? In the past, you know, products were classed as success if customers bought them. And then product managers would have to decide whether to put a feature into a product or not, right? It's the, it's the time-honored tradition. But now they can actually go into the licensing mechanism and see is that feature being used? And if not enough customers are using that feature, then it's going to get cut. And if you're a customer who's using a product that isn't used much, or you've got a feature that isn't used much, you might find yourself facing many, many more upgrades or features being removed just because, you know, the licensing, uh, you know, shows, or the data shows that that product's not going to be used anymore or is not worth investing in because 5% of our customers get, you know, use it. And those 5% of customers represent this amount of money to us. So we'll cut it out of the broad, you know, we'll end of life that and move on to something else. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, I don't know, Drew. Probably both. Yeah. I sort of wonder if there's maybe an opportunity here for Red Hat OpenShift uh, to come in and be like, you're dealing with a more aggressive, uh, more eventually meaner uh, VMware. This is maybe an opportunity for you to start looking at those relationships and decide, do you want to uh, have a competitive uh, op- op- option uh, in your portfolio? Mm-hmm. This, I think IBM could uh, maybe step in and say, hey, 
and take a look over here. Yeah, OpenShift, uh, Nutanix is another one. Uh, some people are talking about KubeVirt, which is the open source uh, Kubernetes virtualization platform where you can run containers and, virtu and uh, VMs in a single tool. That would require some willingness to engage with open source and to yes. skill up, you know, it, without it. Yeah. yeah, if you're paying for a VMware, you're probably not going KubeVirt, but it, it's oh. there. I, I don't know how this is going to work out. There is a point at which if VMware gets so expensive, um, and this is what a lot of the vendors have done, the vendors who've gone up market, they don't have any junior engineers coming through who know their products. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is the big end of the town, which has always relied on the, you know, the engineers start out at a small company, get their basic chops, get their vendor skills on a particular platform, Cisco VMware, you know, whatever. And then they come to the big company and they've been trained by somebody else. Whereas if you drop these smaller companies, where's the onboarding for those people? Um, I think we're starting to see some of that now where the vendors who went up market are going like, how do I, how do I make people who are loyal to me? And those people have gone off somewhere else. It's a bit like Facebook and TikTok, right? The young people aren't on Facebook. They're all off on some other platform. And now Facebook's going, you know, we didn't really do anything nice for those people for the next generation. And now it's coming back to bite us 10 years down the line. So interesting. But simplifying the product, definitely. And the licensing, simplifying that is very welcome. I think people really hate the current situation. Yeah. And I do think um, other vendors will be taking note of this and thinking like, you know, we should really think about simplifying our licensing model as well. All right, links in the show notes. If you want to read up, we'll move on. Uh, Anuda Networks, they make network automation and orchestration software for large networks. They've announced a new AI virtual assistant that uses generative AI and large language models to let operators ask questions using natural language prompts. You can do things like kick off tasks, generate code, uh, or get uh, questions answered that's drawing from documentation. Um, Anuda says uh, customer specific data is anonymized and not shared with external entities. We didn't get any details on what LLMs they might be using or where all this data is going, but I think the broader point is that uh, we're going to start seeing AI assistance popping up everywhere. Yeah, I like the name of it, At Atom Ava. Atom, of course, is their product name mm -hmm. for the whole platform. Ava mm -hmm. is the name of the AI, which feels a bit like something out of a movie. There's like a Hollywood movie where Ava is the AI. Is that well, it's because it's the Atom virtual assistant, so you get Ava. So yes, well, uh, well see, there it, there it is. Ah, <laughs> ah, there it is. I didn't see that. I'll have to, I'll, I'll, well, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take the knockback. Fair enough. Um, so they claim this is um, saying that this AI is operated on onboarding, minimizing errors, proactively identifying issues, simplifying troubleshooting. And the documentation talks about five areas. Copilot, which is where they use the AI to generate code, mitigate errors, and accelerate deployments. And of course, Anuda is an orchestration engine, a multi-vendor orchestration engine designed to work for large networks, very up to very large networks, including telco and yep. operator networks at 5G. So this is, it could scale down fair enough, but it's really designed. So you, part of using the Anuda platform is that you may have to write code for certain functions. So they're using a co-pilot, a bit like we already see on GitHub. That's not hard with an LLM. Uh, operator assistance, so automation and operational tasks are effortly managed through contextual prompts. And I'm thinking here, level one, level two, help desk people who sort of, you know, haven't got years of mastering some arcane CLI, Mm -hmm. but still know they know they want to ask a specific question, but they don't know the exact syntax. Now you can use an LLM to simplify that. So that's pretty straightforward. We've seen that everywhere. Yeah. Um, documentation assistant, you know, obviously getting an LLM to query a documentation or a knowledge base is actually far more efficient. It's what most people use yeah. chat GPT for. But the one that I thought was interesting was they're doing guided troubleshooting. So root cause analysis, minimizing network downtime and operational costs. They're saying that if you issue a query like, and I quote, why did the BGP routes fluctuate last night at 11 p.m.? 
And then Arva will pinpoint the errors in the BGP configuration, changes in link states, or neighbor relationships. So I think that is a pretty good write-up. That's an, probably some of the smartest marketing, well-written marketing I've seen in quite some time, Joe. <laughs> and that's, that is probably a very viable use of AI. Absolutely. I mean, certainly, you know, uh, in, instead of having you go look through a bunch of uh, documentation to figure out what command you need to use, having an AI do it, who's trained on that documentation makes a lot of sense and also limits the potential for mistakes to come through if it's limited to that documentation. Um, and as I said, I think AI assistants are going to become a more common feature. Uh, for instance, today's TechBite is an example. Juniper already has Marvis. Cisco announced an AI assistant for firewall policies. So these things mm -hmm. are here. I think the issue now is for uh, our audience to start being able to figure out what questions they need to ask, like, uh, what data do you need? Where are you getting it? Where is that data going? Is it being anonymized? Is it being encrypted? Uh, might this data leak or be used by other LLMs that are open to the public? Uh, these are important issues that you are going to have to grapple with because everyone is going to have an AI assistant. Yeah, and I think it's going to be worth having. Um, you know, In some cases, yeah, I, I yeah. kind of agree, yep. Yeah, um, I don't think it's worth paying for because I don't think these vendors are putting a whole lot of effort into this. Keep in mind that AI really arrived on the market in March last year, Drew. Remember ChatGPT sort of emerged? It's been fast. It's been fast. Right? Yeah. So really, you know, we've gotten from there to here, and now all of a sudden it's, you know, December of this year. So nine months after OpenAI got ChatGPT out the door, we've got AI in our tools. That's not a lot of work. It didn't cost them a lot of money to put AI in. So I don't see, um, I just see this as like a standard feature to make the most, to get ROI out of the products you've already gotten. I don't believe or, or I don't promote or subscribe to the view, I think is the word that they say on television, um, that there's a lot of, you know, value to be had by jumping into, you know, you shouldn't have to pay extra for these products, I think, Drew. And because it's it's taken them a couple of months, bang, out the door. Product ready, decision made. I don't think it's cost them much. Yeah, my inclination is that um, it's going to be the Hotel California situation. It's going to be free to check in, but when you want to leave, that's when uh, it's going to be harder to do. I think they will find ways to monetize this, particularly as they get more effective and more valuable to the customer. I, and yeah, maybe their costs are low, but this is not free, mm. and they're going to be collecting lots of data that's going to need to be stored and protected uh, and analyzed. It's, those costs are going to go up. So I think it's going to be, we'll start you off free, we'll get mm. you addicted, and then... Uh, <laughs> and then we start asking. I think I, I think I think my point would be is that if you're sitting here saying how much is AI worth, I think it's certainly worth money to you in terms of saving your operational costs. But I don't think it's worth saying, oh, this cost my vendor a fortune, therefore I should pay a fortune for it. I think this is, you know, as 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 cost, took about as much work as saying adding EVPN to your existing products. You didn't go and pay extra to get VXLAN support in your routers and switches, right? Just a standard feature. Yeah. And so paying extra for AI doesn't make sense to me because just so little effort has gone into, it really is going and getting an AI model from a third party, getting another, you know, building a small LLM and, and structuring it and so forth, and then just pushing it out the door. Not, this is, doesn't require them to hire, you know, 500 new programmers and blah, blah, blah. This really is just taking something off the shelf and snapping it into their existing product lineup. It's not nothing, but it's not, you know, it's not a massive feature. I don't believe it's worth anything. It's not a value thing. And it lets the vendors, lets the products deliver value to customers. And that should result in more sales of the product or more use of their product. That's a very nice story. Uh, I don't believe it. <laughs>
So okay. we'll, we'll, we'll put that on the uh, prediction spreadsheet. Put that so, on yeah. the spreadsheet. Yeah, again, Drew says <laughs> vendors will charge for it. Vendors I think customers will refuse it. to pay for it. And if you wait long enough, it'll come for free. Yeah. All right. Excellent. Yeah. It's on the spreadsheet. A bit like intent-based network. Remember when it was intent-based networking? It was a premium. We, yeah, I get your point, but uh, yeah. this, this is not that. So No, well, yeah. I'd say it is. It's the same. Well, let's move on. Uh, some market updates in the firewall and campus switching segments. I'll start with uh, firewalls. Delora reports that high-end firewall revenues have declined for a third consecutive quarter. However, that decline is being offset by double-digit double growth for mid-range firewalls and virtual firewalls. Delora is attributing the high-end decline to service providers holding off on spending as they deploy gear that's finally been delivered after production delays due to the pandemic and supply chain constraints. Uh, in the campus switch market, however, the third quarter of 2023 saw a 24% spike in revenues year over year as backlogs are getting filled. Delora says this is the fifth consecutive quarter of revenue growth over 20%. Uh, I think, though, the question is, since this is looking at the past, those digestion problems uh, that hit the service provider are also going to be hitting the campus markets. And based on quarterly results we've recently covered from networking vendors, uh, that, that party is probably over as well. I find it hard to believe that, you know, the campus networks are being upgraded, but what do I know? They obviously are. People are spending <laughs> hand are. over fist. Yes. It seems to me like you should just be getting a sassy network and being done with it and not bothering with the campus. But the legacy is out there. And, you know, as we've said before, the a lot of the campus is over 20 years old and sort of in need of a refresh in a security environment. So I can see that, but we're also seeing the enterprise, uh, the high-end firewall sales slump. I think that is partly to do with a lot of the telcos have sort of said, we're done investing in 5G. It hasn't, there's no extra money in it. So we're not going to force 5G into the market because we can't charge a premium for it. As our existing 4G networks roll out, you'll roll off or get ready for refresh or replacement, then we'll roll 5G into the gap. And so that's suddenly a lot of the capex that was previously earmarked. Remember the hype around 5G was huge. The vendors were, it was going to be like, oh, rah, rah. Customers are going to pay three times as much to have the extra bandwidth and all this. Of course they weren't. Um, that's like saying AI is worth something. Um, so I think this is pretty normal. There's another. There's three possible other ways to look at this. One way is that enterprise IT is busy deploying the backlog orders. Some of the analysts push that line. Another story is that enterprise IT is slowing spending in uncertain economic times. Another one that I've seen is the traditional vendors are slowing, you know, customers are slowing down sales on IT as they wait to see how, you know, what happens to inflation and employment and home ownership and stuff like that. And there's also another story where enterprise IT is shifting spending away from its traditional vendors to somewhere else, that be that cloud, be that startup to SaaS or whatever. Mm -hmm. I'd say probably all of those are true to some extent true. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you're seeing fluctuations in different parts of the markets as the enterprise IT goes through a period of change. Um, pick whichever one you like as the yeah. winner or which one you think has the most impact. But I wouldn't disagree with any of them. Yeah. All right, links in the show notes if you want to read it for yourself. A uh, quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks. Your branches change, your SD-WAN should too. Join Palo Alto Networks to see how AI and ML are powering next-gen SD-WAN and SASE for the branch. As businesses focus on driving the next growth phase, branch transformation has become a key priority for IT leaders. Critical industries such as finance, retail, healthcare, and manufacturing rely on a network of branch offices to serve their customers well. The newly established trends of hybrid work, digital-first customers, and accelerated cloud adoption are forcing organizations to rethink their branch IT strategy. SDX Central and Palo Alto Networks hosted an exclusive online event. You can get a full replay of the event to see how NextGen, SD-WAN, and SASE can help you modernize and secure your branches. You can find that link at xdxcentral.com uh, or go to the link in the show notes for Network Break episode 460. We thank Palo Alto Networks for being a sponsor. 
Right uh, back to the news, the Open Networking Foundation. This is a nonprofit organization that oversees efforts such as OpenFlow and the P4 programming language is turning over all its projects to the Linux Foundation and dissolving the organization. Yeah, I wrote the headline to this is um, Open Networking Foundation gives up remains buried at the Linux Foundation. Might be harsh a little harsh. That might be harsh, but uh, a little true the, as well. <laughs> the backstory here is that the ONF was an organization <clears throat> developed using P4 and OpenFlow and software defined networking. Um, they did a bunch of different things in different spaces, but ended up um, being a major contributor to the Open RAN, particularly in the networking stack. Uh, and they were a for profit open source organization supplying different parts of the Open RAN system. Mm-hmm. Back in early 2022, when Intel went on a spending spree and hiring hundreds of the top networking people from all around the world, you know big and big names paying big, big money uh, to grow that networking business. Um, they actually hired the entire team of the Open Networking Foundation to develop Open RAN 5G and then open sourced all of their developments to date at the time that they acquired that team. Uh, Intel, didn't, of course, didn't stick with that strategy and subsequently forced to downsize that part of its business, the networking business, which included the Tofino and the P4 and the DPUs and the switching business. It was all going to get back into routers and all that sort of stuff. That all just disappeared. Um, so at the end of the day, it's 15 months later, say, um, you know, sort of 18 months later has passed. So the open networking foundation has now been passed to the Linux foundation. It's not clear to me whether there's a, whether the momentum behind the ONF would survive going to the Linux foundation, it's sort of like, you know, the place where Linux where open source projects go when the in, initial momentum or the initial originator behind them says, I don't know what to do with this anymore give it to the Linux Foundation, and then it's up to the people participating in the project to generate the momentum, to sustain it, to get together, have a governance and an oversight and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, whether it will still be able to do that, I don't know. You know, we'll, you know, we had, the ONF, we had AT&T, Deutsche Telekom, Google, Intel, Microsoft, NTT, and Turk Telecom, you know, are they all going to show up and pay for developers now that it's under the Linux Foundation, or are they going to look around and go, you know, I'm going to go to Ericsson or Nokia for my open RAN? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of things. I sort of worry about the Linux foundation toppling under its own weight. It is dealing with a huge number of projects. Uh, so I don't know if this is just sort of where the ONF is uh, going to retire. Um, the other thing is I want to make sure folks don't confuse open networking foundation with the open compute project. Uh, the open compute project is still alive and well, that's overseeing a variety of open hardware, software and infrastructure projects, including the Sonic network OS, the open network Linux OS and ONI. Uh, the, so the open compute project still still going on, still in an independent entity. I um, just want to make sure that's clear to folks listening. Yeah, yeah a lot that's of right. Yeah. Mm. Things with open in them that uh, it's hard to keep track of. Remember we used to say in like uh, uh, another foundation, another right. open source project. <laughs> it was like another week, another another foundation. Yeah. And, and, and time... to your, to your uh, point about these projects needing a champion, a lot of the ones that have had momentum behind them tend to have a very large uh, commercial backer like Sonic being backed by Microsoft and so on. So that's Red usually Hat. the key to success. <laughs> right. Red Hat, Red yes. Hat I mean, behind Linux, you know, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, so, yeah. Well, too bad for uh, ONF. Uh, sad to see it go. Um, but it did start in a in, a, in an age when SDN yeah. was all the rage and that kind of, we've kind of moved on from that. Yeah, I think the people involved did okay. They all got hired by the Intel and they probably would have got nice severances package. So uh, on that side, they're probably doing okay. Yeah. 
right, uh, moving on. A U.S. federal judge has rejected patent infringement claims against Cisco brought by a security company called Centripetal Networks. In a previous lawsuit, a different judge had ruled in favor of Centripetal and ordered Cisco to pay $2.75 billion. This happened a couple of years ago. However, an appeals court overturned that verdict after it learned that the judge's wife had owned 100 shares of Cisco stock, and they said that was unethical and then uh, uh, invalidated the judgment. Yeah. <laughs> I don't quite understand this. This is one of those, it's, it's legal, case. but it's a wild case. Yeah. And this is one of those, is it legal? Is it moral discussions, right? right. The judge's wife owns some shares, which probably went down because of the court case, not up. Exactly. So it's not like she shorted them or something like that. Right. 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 And it was a hundred shares worth less than $5,000. Exactly. It's not like that's a whole lot of stock. So this really feels like it's legal, but is it moral? Um, but it does follow the trend, especially something that's a US trend, which is of winning at any cost where large business can justify any activity, no matter how dubious, unethical, immoral, or borderline corrupt, can be justified by winning is the only thing that matters. We see this a lot. Like, you know, Trump is all about winning. doesn't matter how you got there, how many people you, you know, stepped on, how many things you destroyed, how much other things you did wrong to get, so long as you win. And certainly Cisco has a history of hiring the most aggressive law firms for this type of purpose. Uh -huh. If you recall the Arista cases, which caused Arista problems for a while um, and ultimately had very little impact at the end of the day, probably did Arista a favor by recognizing him as a competitor. Cisco has continually pursued counterfeiters, companies who were in the reused market or the resale market and gray marketeer with lawyers and aggressively pursued these cases until court terms were issued. So not just financial penalties, Quite a lot of them were not just pursued as civil matters, they were pursued as criminal matters where they might not necessarily have been so. And of course, Sinio Cisco continues to aggressively defend its own patents patents generally. Mm -hmm. um, so it will sue anybody who's using its patents as, as, an, as an aggressive um, tactic, and it will defend its patents very, very aggressively as well. So in, in the no circumstances should you think of Cisco as a soft, fluffy bunny, they are an absolutely ruthless business. Yes. And quite willing to put lawyers into play to do that. Um, so using a technical legal technicality to avoid a 2.75 billion fine, Drew, entirely on brand for Cisco. Um, and, and you know, I guess for 2.7 billion, that's probably, their shareholders are probably pleased about it. And maybe that's the justification. Yeah. Yeah. I do feel like Cisco got off on a technicality and not necessarily on the merits of the uh, intellectual property claims. Uh, and I'm all for eliminating conflicts of interest in the judiciary. This seems like an extreme case, though. And I'm curious how widely and strictly these rules are being observed or enforced across our judiciary. So <laughs> lots of questions still. But uh, yeah. I guess well done, Cisco legal team. You've, you've That's right. Deep. It's legal, but is it moral? Is that discussion here? This goes into that bucket. Right. Uh, the U.S. Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, has rejected a Starlink bid to provide broadband access to rural and underserved communities in the U.S. Starlink would have received $866 million in federal subsidies to provide the service. On review of the bid, the FCC determined that, quote, Starlink failed to demonstrate that it could deliver the promised service, end quote, uh, the FCC press release announcing the determination did not provide details on how it got to that conclusion. I can give you some insights onto that, Drew. All it right. would have could have received up to eight hundred and eighty six million in federal subsidies. Mm -hmm. um, this is part of the RDOF Rural Digital Opportunity Fund program overseen by the FCC, uh, and it's quite a lot. And I mean, it's a lot of money enough to move vendor share prices around when that was announced. The thing about the subsidy program was that it announced specific performance criteria, which Starlink absolutely did not comply with. It should never have bid for the business in the first place. I remember reading about this a couple of years back when they put their bid in. 
they um they don't meet the upload and they also don't meet the latency requirements. Uh, okay. However, what is true is that Starlink was something that would be immediately available and with a subsidy they could cover a lot of rural areas and give access. But the point of the RDOF funding was also to support businesses in the rural communities. So part of the funding was to build out cabling infrastructure in rural areas, but also to create jobs in those areas, which is part of the intent of the program, right? I see, okay. So it's not as simple as, oh, we've got an internet service, you should give us free money to do that. It was, it has to meet a specific performance guarantees. It had a, an employment part of it. There are aspects of it, which is it's meant to support the local communities in various ways. And the SpaceX Starlink would do none of that. But, you know, Starlink loves free money. They're not shy about getting into legal court cases. They've already issued a legal challenge, as you might expect, Drew. Um, yeah, no surprise. No surprise there. And, you know, I think that Elon just loves free government money and he's going to keep hunting this down. But I think the FCC should be on a strong win here in that if you don't meet the criteria of the RDOF, you know, of the of the bid that you put out there and say, please give us the requirements, then you can't come back and say, well, you should change the rules for me, right? <laughs> That's not how it works, right? So. Yes, I, I guess I understand that based on the criteria. I just, it's, I'm not an Elon Musk stand, but I feel like Starlink uh, and satellite-based broadband service in general is a way to address the issue of lack of connectivity in, in rural and far-flung communities. And we have been waiting for years and years and years and years for mm -hmm. infrastructure to be built out there. Uh, and for a variety of reasons, it just takes a long time. So this in some ways feels like uh, the FCC stepping on itself uh, over a technicality. So unfortunate uh, for people who actually need uh, access. When Starlink submitted a bid for this, it was widely discussed in the press and highlighted the fact that it just didn't meet the criteria. Mm -hmm. So it should never have got this far. They should never have accepted the offer yeah. to reject it is basically the thing. But they did um, under pressure from various forces inside of the FCC at the time. Under the previous administration, they accepted the bid, even though it wasn't compliant. And now there's a different, uh, you know, the time has passed and a different committee at the top making the decisions and they've rejected it on the basis that it doesn't meet the requirements. Yeah. Okay. Fair yeah. enough. All right. Uh, one more story before we wrap. Uh, Project Kuiper, uh, which is Amazon's effort to uh, launch satellites to provide uh, broadband service from space, has uh, successfully tested its space lasers to connect those satellites. <laughs> Well, we talked about Kuiper last week launching on SpaceX rockets and saying congratulations on biting down on that bullet and getting your project <laughs> underway, even though you probably are chasing getting satellites into space so you can claim that the licensing that you've been allocated, uh, you can actually make use of it. They've announced successful space laser testing, 100 gigabit per second optical links between two satellites, prototype satellites, over 621 miles or 1,000 kilometers for the entire test window. I mean, once, it's, you know, Launching two test satellites and getting them to talk to each other over a laser once is hardly more than a proof of concept to me, Drew. Um, but keep in mind here that Kuiper now has to build an entire mesh network of satellites to do something mm -hmm. usable. Mm -hmm. um, the blog post is a bit, uh, is very sort of like, we're almost there. You should sign up for it, <laughs> which I think is incredibly optimistic. Uh, thanks to Brandon for bringing this to my attention. But keep in mind, you know, Brandon's on our Slack channel and he was the one who actually posted it there to bring it to my attention. Um, the, I think the point here is that Kuiper is using laser links between satellites, which is very important because it makes them very competitive with Starlink. Because, of course, when Starlink launched its satellites, um, the first generations of satellites, you could point your dish to it, and then they had to directly go to ground. So you couldn't actually go 
up into the to, to the satellite and then it wouldn't go laterally around the orbit, right? Uh-huh. So uh-huh. your packet had to go up. And so what was happening sometimes is your your satellite dish would point to a satellite, then it would come down to the ground and then it would go terrestrial from then on, or in some cases would go back up to the next satellite and then come back down. And because everything was only a single hop, the network was highly congested, but it proved that you know these mesh networks of microsatellites could certainly work. So Kuiper is going to have a commercial advantage over Starlink in the sense it doesn't have to run that first generation, you know, proving that this whole business model works. Right. Uh, but they still got to launch you know, two prototypes with one link for a specific for a short period of testing. Is not exactly the several thousand satellites they're going to have to launch and scale and get working. So, right. Yeah, keep up the good work, fellas. But uh, let's see a little bit more action. Let's let's see Blue Origin getting their rockets ready to go, because that's the only cost-effective way they're going to get that up there is um, if they're paying SpaceX prices, I don't think that's going to be profitable in the long run. Yeah. Yeah, just a reminder, um, as always, you can reach us uh, with a comment or a show note at uh, packetpushers.net slash FU or join our Slack channel, packetpushers.net slash Slack. If you want to talk to us, talk to other people in the in the channel, uh, have conversations about networking, share issues and stuff, uh, it's all for free. All right, that wraps up the news portion of the show. Thank you for listening. Please stick around for our Tech Bytes conversation. We're going to be talking with Fortinet about their new 40 advisor capability to provide uh, generative AI uh, an assistant uh, for your security operations center. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, sponsored by Fortinet, we dive into Fortinet Advisor. This is a new generative AI offering designed to act as an assistant to SOC analysts and security teams by providing context-aware event summaries, potential impacts, and recommended responses while also keeping humans in the loop. Our guest to delve into the details is Kevin Faulkner, Director of Product Marketing for Fortisor at Fortinet. Uh, Kevin, welcome to the podcast. So generative AI, it's the new fashion in tech. Is this Fortinet just being buzzword compliant or does the company have a longer history with AI? Fortinet has a long history with uh, AI and in particular machine learning as well across the products, primarily for detection. So it's been over 10 years now that we've incorporated this kind of technology primarily into threat detection, also threat intelligence gathering and threat intelligence management for our, our threat feeds. Mm-hmm. So the idea of AI is is nothing new in the, in the security products. It's very, very important. And it's being improved, of course, all the time, but it's fundamental now and, and has been for some time. Gen AI itself opens up a new stage and a new phase and a new way to use AI. And that's what we're here to talk about today. So in some ways, AI has sort of been in the background of Fortinet products, sort of looking for malware, new threats and so on. But I guess you could say generative AI sort of puts it to the forefront now because folks can actually interact with it. Exactly that. So it's a, think of it as an incremental type of artificial intelligence. It doesn't replace what we have for detection and other product functionality. But this isn't kind of a new frontier where we can bring AI into an interactive mode uh, to provide this kind of level of assistance instead of being in the background and doing things for uh, on behalf and primarily detection for the customer. So you'd make the point that AI is sort of the follow-on to machine learning and it's it's similar, which it is. It's not entirely dissimilar to machine learning. You've been doing it for years effectively as part of the security operations, so threat detection, you know, intelligent analysis for security operations. And really adding AI is just a normal organic, you know, progression in the platform. Yes and no. I think that the answer is yes, a normal progression will continue to happen across all these fronts. 
but the advent of using Gen AI really does change things. This is a this okay. is kind of one of those hockey st stick moments in AI, and its usefulness for the analysts and in an everyday scenario that's very visible and um, and clearly helpful to uh, to the person. So we could talk about some of those use cases, and I think mm -hmm. that become a little clearer. Yeah, so let's talk about how you're delivering the product. Is it is it bundled with particular uh, products that Fortinet offers? How do I, as a customer, uh, interface with it, access it? Yeah, well, we have an overall effort uh, and then an overall offering, and we call it Fortinet Advisor. And that is really our Gen AI engine and everything that goes with it, our complete solution that will be available in a series of products across the whole portfolio. Our first uh, first release is available within our SIM product 40 SIM and our SOAR product 40 SOAR, because that's where we saw the, the main pain points. Uh, but the, the experience, and this is what's most important, the experience of using this advisor as an assistant is built into those two products. So while it, it does share the technology and it has some very similarities in the experience, the whole idea is for this assistant, this AI assistant, to be so built into your product that it's a natural thing to use like any other function within the product. And it helps you get things done within the context of the product. So can you give me an example of how I would use it if I was in, say, the, the SIEM console? Sure. So, for example, if you're in SIM, one of the things you're doing is you're you're trying to investigate events that happen or things perhaps that have already been identified as as incidents. Well, you can do that. Such a common thing will be like, what does this log mean uh, that even we don't. Uh, force you to write uh, in natural language to in, to do an inquiry. We actually have a pull down menu for that one to invoke uh, the advisor, which will say, analyze this incident, tell me what you know. So you will get a complete response that analyzes this incident, or in this case, an event. Um, this is a log from X, Y, and Z indicating X, Y, and Z recommended actions. Uh, the things you should look at are A, B, and C. So built right into the product, uh, you know, you're getting this kind of uh, advice, if you will, uh, or assistance right with a, with a click. Now, there's also a natural language interface where you can just basically type like, what is this malware? You know, have you seen this before? Um, is this somewhere in my system? So those sort of commands that you are, uh, can also interactively uh, use. And again, you, you're saying natural language queries. I don't have to learn sort of a, a specific language to interact with this. I can just ask a question like I would a human. Exactly. That's um, that's a big part of what Gen AI right mm -hmm. learns that uh, that is so new about our interaction with AI or our ability now to interact with with AIs. We can do it in natural language, and you know we take that one step further with the whole idea of the context within the product, so that we not just say well natural language about tell me more about this malware or tell me about these IOCs. Uh, what we can do or this threat actor. Uh, what we also do is allow you to interact with product functions that are otherwise sometimes a little more complex to use. For example, doing a query for threat hunting in a SIM or generating a report. Now, rather than having to click and, and do either uh, some lower level language or at least a bunch of drop down menus to create a report and kind of hope you got it right, well, you can type it in. Give me a report that says over the last 30 days, which events happened on executive desktops. 
and put that in English and it'll generate a report for you. You could also do stuff where you're already aware of the context. So because I'm in the desktop management platform or I'm in the SASE tool and I'm threat hunting inside of the SASE environment, the LLM would be know the context because what Fortinet Advisor is, it's partly is the generative AI. So it's an LLM from, you know, chat GPT or Google Bard or whatever. And that's going to do the LLM part, but there's another part to this AI, which Fortinet has developed, which says, oh, I know about security. So I'm going to frame the queries for you. I'm going to restrict the output um, to be in context of what's happening inside of the Fortinet platform. Yes, exactly. I think that these things are important to, to point out. Our customers, customers ask, well, you know, how does it work? What you know, what's behind the curtain, if you will. And um, and for our approach is to leverage open AI, if you will, public AI engines, and we mm -hmm. let the customer choose, for example, between open AI, uh, Google Bard, and we will be supporting additional engines here very shortly. So mm -hmm. let the customer choose which engines they they prefer that they're, they may, maybe have tested in other scenarios. And then, but the most important thing is that we surround that, if you will, into a complete solution where we augment that AI intelligence that we're getting from the public source uh, with our own threat intelligence, with the own our own Fortinet product and use case knowledge that makes this whole thing contextual. So if you say, build me a playbook or tell me, uh, suggest a playbook, we know what you're looking at right now for what incident. We know that we're building a playbook in 40 SOAR. It's not general information about playbooks mm. or automation mm. you, you want. You want to be able to, after you see what's generated for you, look at it, click on it and say, Put that into production. So there's there's a whole kind of a three step process. Uh, response augmentation is is the formal name for it mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. AI world, uh, and that's where we bring uh, kind of our, if you will, a secret sauce to the whole process. So yeah. you're saying if I ask for a recommendation, a playbook, a response, uh, it will be generated in the correct syntax for the Fortinet platform, as opposed to sort of a general output that I would then have to apply myself and, and use all the correct syntax myself. That's absolutely correct. And that's one of the reasons why uh, we like to talk about it as an overall concept, if you will, and offering that is an assistant for our products that shares a lot of characteristics, no matter which product you're using. But on the other hand, if you ask me how I can use it, what will it do for me? That answer will vary depending on which product we've integrated it into and you know what are the key functions for that product. Sure, some things like some general questions you could always ask. But when it gets down to, you know, I'm using a SIM and I need to make a query, I'm using SOAR and I need to do X, Y, or Z, I'm in an EDR system and I need to do this, or, you know, we haven't talked about NetOps yet, but that's the next frontier as well for hmm. us is to is to say, hey, I'm a network operations engineer. What can what should I do? What policies, how are my policies affecting my traffic? Maybe how can I optimize things further? There's a whole set of things that are would be in specific there. I see this as a whole SecOps or security operations. I think mostly we're going to see AI attack the operations environment first. It's going to make operations. So instead of lose, learning some arcane command line to make a query or 
if I want to um, query a threat intelligence database looking for a particular thing, I don't want to have to go over here and take a pattern and load it into a threat database and say, can you find something that looks like this? That's a tool that AI can do really well. And somebody like Fortinet can execute inside of their existing tool. So you add it on. And then I can strap an LLM onto that AI, which is actually doing the work and make natural language queries to a lot of this. So operations now becomes, have I seen this threat somewhere else in my network? And off it goes. You're absolutely right. So I, we really believe that this is going to usher in a new era of the way that analysts work, uh, their their ease of getting information, their ease of, let's say, automation, uh, honestly, right, of different tasks. Get this for me, uh, get that for me. So imagine, you know, for example, with threat intelligence feeds, they're super important, right, but they're hard to manage, and then you still end up going looking and searching for, through them yourselves. Well, you can do this now much, yeah. much simpler uh, with, a, with an AI Instead system. Instead of writing some arcane query structured query language, you know, SQL derived, you know, database search thing, which is what we used to do, right? For a right. lot of sources, I'd learn to speak Fortinet's, you know, saw language to make a query about something. Now I'm going to be using AI to do that. So precisely. Yeah, right. And and that's really, I think, you know, the discussions that we had about this is that SecOps teams are really ripe for automation because there's so much data, so many threats, the threats are so diverse. And they're changing that it's becoming increasingly more and more expensive for companies to defend themselves. And of course, there's the business need here where companies have got a much higher level of obligation, especially in the US, to detect breaches early. They can't, they, if they have sort of discovered six months later, co companies can now fail. The risks of that, you know, some might survive, but some might actually just be completely wiped out by it. So the, the focus on security operations is much higher than it was, say, a year or two ago. Yes, uh, absolutely. And we've been asked, it's like, well, how did you choose which products you were going to put this in first? And it's because of what you just said. We understand that there's a pain point that is, is you know, AI is helping to address up until now. And so are so is automation and SOAR in particular. But there's so much more that we can do. And this is an area where customers are absolutely focused in terms of uh, needing to make things more efficient, make things more uh, available. So one of the things that I wanted to ask here is that this AI is going to be very closely aligned to Fortinet. So it knows the tools that Fortinet has, the tools of cybersecurity. I guess the risk hit, there's a couple of quick risks that I'm going to touch on here. And I don't want to go too far into data privacy because we know that a lot of, if I make queries, the people who own AI systems are sometimes sucking that data back. Is that something that I should be concerned about here? Uh, it's absolutely that something that uh, anyone looking at this type of tool should uh, look into and uh, and uh, well not be concerned if it's with Fortinet, but be aware of any vendor and what they're doing. We do not share any data with the public uh, AI engines mm. at all, and we don't allow the AI engine also to train on any of the questions that are being asked, and we mask the data that you share first of all so right. we're not sharing any data unless you type it in and even then we can automatically mask it so there's no private information that's being shared uh, that would would hurt you there's no information being shared at all that you didn't explicitly share and then the uh, the whole idea of the training is uh, is not happening at all hmm. so this is a like a, there's kind of a, a basically a wall between what we can suck out of this engine right um, which hmm. is great but then you know let's keep uh, the transaction if you will to ourselves 
and then build that response within the Fortinet fabric itself. I don't want to go into the details here. We don't really have enough time, but that's enough to say, have a discussion with your reseller with Fortinet if you're really concerned about data privacy. But it sounds to me like it's covered. We've talked a lot in security or SecOps over the last three or four years about automation and orchestration and how we reduce the cost of security, but also improve the accuracy of security by using automation. It sounds to me like AI, in a certain way of looking at it, is actually an automation tool, right? Instead of writing a playbook or writing a script, you know, I can just now go to AI and effectively ask it to do something, and that would have been a script or a playbook before. That's absolutely the case. Uh, we really see this overlap uh, between these two things. At least for the, let's say, relatively simple couple of step kind of tasks, uh, right, that um, might have required a playbook before. Now you could tell AI to do it. It's like, you know, do this plus this and then go ahead and block, you know, find the endpoints that have this malware and then block them. Right. And so you could generate that uh, now through AI, where before you would have looked uh, for a playbook to do that in terms of, of automation. So it's going to bring automation uh, more and more to the forefront uh, and make it even simpler than, let's say, a classic uh, a playbook always required kind of approach. So they're very complementary. It sounds like it's also going to hopefully reduce my remediation or investigation timeline. Absolutely. And, and in fact, you know, that's the bottom line, right? That's what we're really trying to do. And in that way, it's completely in line uh, with what our objectives are for SOAR. Because what does SOAR do? It, you know, it tries to do things, number one, in anticipation of what you're going to need, for example, like going through your threat intelligence when you, there's an alert that arrives and seeing if uh, any of those IOCs can be uh, augmented and enriched with information that we already have. Now, we do that before we even pop a screen, right, for the mm. analyst to look at the alert. Well, that's you can call that that's not AI. That's automation in the background, knowing what to do and then being smart about doing it. Yeah. Uh, so so there there's a very much of a congruence, I think, between the objectives of SOAR and then what you can do and the objectives ultimately now, of uh, AI. Now, there's, there's an important thing here. The two things that you talked about here, proactively alerting. And the second thing is writing queries um, you know, asking questions in native language or in, in query language through an LLM to get answers that you want. None of those are changing anything. So at this point in time, AI is a query or read-only function. It's not going in and changing the configuration of your devices. If you say, tell me where this IP address and port number is matched in my firewall policies across my entire network, AI can do that for you, but it's not going to change anything as a result of that at this point. We are not going to end they automatically do anything on on the part of the customer unless they specifically ask for that function to be done. So in a couple of examples I gave you, there are a couple of simple examples. So, uh, for example, build me a playbook to do X. Well, what happens is that we provide the basically the pseudocode or the workflow to the analyst at that point and say, do you like it basically? And they get a chance to review it and they can edit it. They can do anything they they would like with it. Mm. They can then hit a, a, a button that says, 
build this as an official playbook and you know put it into production but we're not in, we're not automatically doing that i we don't believe right now that, that that's the kind of let's say anticipatory action that should be taken we uh, we want to keep the decisioning in the hands uh, of of the analyst so yeah. for that those are the kind of examples we I mean, I mean that's that's what we want we don't right. it's too early to trust ai to make decisions for you and i don't think you as a vendor or uh, me as a customer wants AI to suddenly start reconfiguring my firewall rules or, you know, th detecting a threat and making changes to the threat response, right? We're not ready for that yet. It, it's we're, that, we're that but that could be ahead. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And if you think about it, uh, it absolutely could be ahead. And I think it would, it would make sense for a lot of a lot of let's say at least rudimentary things mm. uh, to be able to be done uh, that way and to be trusted to that level uh, now today no i think especially with gen ai we're, we're seeing how useful it can be but we're also seeing that it isn't perfect i think of it as an additional information source right now um, that's totally valid but it's mm. it's informing you maybe maybe making some suggestions that are, are absolutely concrete and spot on um, but based on knowledge that's out there based on the experience of others based on what mm -hmm. we've learned within fortinet so it's totally valid but it's not yet autopilot we're not uh, yeah we're not we're not ready to do automatic driving right like some somebody some well-known person has promised it for the last decade but it's not ready yet um one exactly. last thing i wanted to ask you if i'm listening to this thinking how could i play with this or evaluate this or put it into my lab is there what's ai is added on to something so i'm going to have to get a product somewhere and install it or something to get to start working with 40 net advisor we do have free trials of our 40 sim and 40 soar products and in the free trial you would have access to the advisor and so you can play with it that way the only uh, thing you have to do besides do the free trial is you have to have a key to the gen ai public gen ai engine of your choice right so that that's a, a prerequisite to that but otherwise yeah you can kick it around i think you'd be impressed and it is uh right we are not charging for this functionality within our products so we we see this as part and parcel of the functionality as as things move forward and we all start to embrace a new generation of ai capabilities I feel like we could talk about this more, but we do have to end here. So um, there'll be links in the show notes to this episode if you want to go uh, find out how to get your hands on Fortinet Advisor or just visit Fortinet.com. And I'm sure they will have all the information needed to get you to where you want to go. Uh, thank you, Kevin, for joining us. And thanks to Fortinet for being a sponsor. Uh, our sponsors make sure that we get to do everything we need to do here at Packet Pusher. So we appreciate it. And as always, thank you for listening. If you like this episode, you can find many more fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify. And if you would, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>